Welcome to the watermarkoc.church podcast. Thank you for listening. It's good to see you all. I have not been here since the first Sunday in December, and I see a lot of new faces, and I just rejoice that you're here to worship with us. So let me introduce myself. My name's Jerry Tallow, and a portion of my family and I have relocated out here from upstate New York for most of the year uh, to serve pastors and elders in the churches in Orange County, and Watermark is like my home base, Uh, but the reason I'm not here every Sunday is because we serve Narrative Church that we prayed for, and Mission El Camino with Francisco And there are some other churches that uh, God is allowing us to connect with. So it's not that I'm home sleeping on Sunday morning, but um, it's a privilege to be here today. So uh, thank you all and God bless you. Did you all have a good holiday? All right. So we are talking about why the Bible matters. Bucky and Ben have been preaching on it. And I got the assignment to talk about the canon of Scripture. So this is kind of a history lesson. I'll try to make it interesting. Not canons. You guys would like to hear the history of canons, I'm sure. And so would I. But we're talking about, basically, how did the Bible come to be the Bible? And how do you know that it's the Bible? Are those legitimate questions? We live in an age of huge skepticism. By the way, I asked Seth if the high school group could stay in here so they understand the history of how Scripture came to be recognized to be the Word of God, all right? And so it's, we live in what's called a postmodern society where people never even hear the name of Jesus except to cuss it. And so most people mock the Bible or laugh at Christians in terms of this not being what it says it is and not being real. So we're going to attempt to look at what really happened and how it came to be what it is. So... The first thing I want to do is read a couple of scriptures. You can't have a main text when you're teaching the history of the Bible, right? But there are a couple of them I want to hit with to start off with that will show us what the Bible thinks of itself. Now, there's what scripture thinks of scripture, but let's first pray. Father, we're so thankful that even as this excellent worship team led us in today, we sing about your sovereignty, your greatness, your supremacy, your holiness, you are all things. And you gave us this word to guide us. So we humbly ask that you would show up, your Holy Spirit would bless this message and open our eyes and our understanding in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to the fourth and third last verses in the entire Bible. At the end of the book of Revelation, John the Apostle wrote this And look at the warning that he gives. He says this, So I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. Now, if you've read Revelation, there are a lot of plagues. I mean, it would be an incredible science fiction series, wouldn't it? Hollywood could make millions, billions doing Revelation. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. The tree of life is the symbol of salvation in Jesus Christ. So, 
What God is saying here is, look, if any of you think you no more are smarter than me, and you add to this book or you take away from it, wrath is coming on you. That's how important the words of this book are to me. You know, Revelation is one of the most written about books of the Bible, and people have made millions and millions of dollars writing their opinions of what it means. Let me ask you, and people have added stuff to it. What if they're wrong? Right? I mean, you all have opinions, don't you? I'll bet right now, those of you that have ever read it, and we don't read it that often, everyone has an opinion of what it means. Most of us are probably wrong. How about that one? You might get some of it right, but do you think you can figure the whole thing out? It's impossible. So God gives a serious warning. His word is so important to him, he doesn't want anyone messing with it. Now, I want to jump all the way back to a guy named Moses. You know who he was? Right? Charlton Heston? Right? Charlton Heston, part of the Red Sea. And when he gets the Israelites and Edward G. Robinson out into the desert, how many of you ever saw the Ten Commandments? All right, so you know what I'm talking about. Anyway, Moses is in the desert, and when he writes the book of Deuteronomy, it's a summary of all that had happened. Deuteronomy means the second giving of the law. And look at what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 4 about the law. And now Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules. That's encompassing all of the law that Moses had given to Israel. I am teaching you, and do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Do you remember who Jesus was always fighting with in his earthly ministry? A group called the Pharisees. And he said, you've added so many commands to the word of God that you take the effectiveness of the Bible away. He said, woe unto you, don't mess with it. And so we see way back in the beginning and at the very end, God is warning everyone. When I write something down and it becomes a scripture, and we'll talk about how it became the scripture, do not mess with it because it has a power to it nothing else has. Does that make sense to you? So these are not... In that sense, human words. Okay. And you, you, you saw what our young comedian, I mean young man read. Did a great job, didn't he? From Joshua. He said, you know, if this book doesn't depart from you, you're always going to have success. Is that magic? No. It's the inherent power of the scriptures that God is speaking to us about in Joshua chapter 1. So I want to talk about the word canon for a minute, C-A-N-O-N. The Greek word for canon is canon, K-A-N-O-N. How about that? Thank God that one's easy. And canon means measuring rod or norm. So over the course of time, as the, the church discovered the canon of Scripture, the issue was, what is the true measuring rod for truth? What is the norm that everything in life should be measured by? What is that which should be the authoritative rule for my faith, for my beliefs, for my life, for my actions, for what happens in society? And so 
the church, the early church, was on a quest to determine what is everything measured by. So back the summer, back in upstate New York where we live, my youngest son and I had to cut off much of the roof of our barn and rebuild it. And then I had my nephew put on a a steel roof on it once we redid all of the framing and everything. And you know the old adage, what is it, measure twice and cut once, guys? Or measure once and cut twice? Why do you need a tape measure when you're building something? And a level. Can somebody tell me? Bob, where are you? He doesn't know. <laughs> your tape measure is your basis. Do you, when you are measuring something and you've got a, uh, an 8 foot 2 by 4 and you need to cut it to 73 and a quarter inches, what do you have to trust? The tape measure, right? If that tape measure is wrong, is your cut going to be wrong? Yeah. So the issue here is if the tape measure is right, you can trust it as a norm to measure everything. You know what was amazing? So because I have no knees, my son, of course, my 17-year-old is up on the roof, and I'm the cutter, and he's telling me, all right, I need 81 and three-quarters, a little light, and I'm the guy down there cutting, and I would measure. I'd measure a second time. My dad taught me that. I'd cut it, and you know what happened? It fit, even with me cutting it. It fit. Why? Because we were able to trust the standard. So canon means the true standard by which everything else is is measured. So I think it's pretty important that they put the right books into the standard, don't you? Otherwise, you're going to measure something for your life and come up with the wrong answers. Now, Canon talks about the scope of the Bible. I need to take a few minutes here and talk about the nature of Scripture, right? There are two things we're going to discuss, inspiration and infallibility. So I'm going to go to a Scripture. The very last book or letter that Paul wrote was to his son Timothy while Paul was in prison. He was shortly beheaded after this. And I'm going to read verse 15 before it to give you a picture, and then read this, okay? Because without these two parts understanding the nature of Scripture, it doesn't matter what the scope is. He says to Timothy, As for you, son, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So the sacred writings here are referring to that which led Timothy to Christ Jesus. Now, the name Jesus is not used in Old Testament writings. The term Christ or anointed one is. That's like a title. But the name Jesus isn't. So Paul is not only referring to the sacred writings of the Old Testament, but don't forget, except for Revelation, every other letter had been written or gospel that we read in the New Testament. And they had been preached in the churches. And Timothy had been using them, like when Paul sent him to the city of Ephesus to oversee the church there. Timothy was teaching from these books or these letters, like the the four gospels and the letter to Philemon and the letter of Romans and the letter letters to the Corinthians. Everybody understand what I'm saying? So Paul is writing as if these sacred writings, holy writings, existed. 
So that's a hint there. And then he goes on and says, all scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Let me tell you, if a church can accomplish all that with everybody, you got one solid church. You get what I'm saying? Body, mind, and spirit, you got it going. That the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So there are a couple, there's a superlative here for every good work. You know what that means? Every good work? Every good work. Shocking, isn't it? It means every. Complete. There's nothing lacking. So what Paul is saying is, whatever is scripture, is scripture because God breathed it out. He exhaled it. We'll talk about where it went in a minute. But it, the exhaling of God, the spirit of God put into words can complete a human being. Everything about you, whatever the Bible is, can complete you. I've talked before here from this pulpit about in the reading of Scripture, in our culture, we think having a little tiny piece of like a cracker is enough for the meal, like you get the verse for the day. And that's crazy when we have the only thing in life that has the power to complete me. Right? My wife discovered a long time ago I don't have the power to complete her. I compliment her, but I certainly don't complete her. You understand what I'm saying there? Okay, but here's the issue. People are always putting inspiration or breathe out from God on the authors. The issue here is not who the recipients were like Paul or Matthew or Mark or Luke that wrote the actual wrote the, the, the books. It has to do with that which is breathed out by God, that Greek word theopneustos, God breathed. It's about the origin. In other words, the ultimate origin and source of the writings is God. He breathed out what he wanted, his truth, Jesus called it. Jesus said to the Father, your word is truth and it sanctifies. There is no other truth. It's more about what God breathes out rather than into what God breathed it. Does that make sense? So he could have picked different authors. People argue about, well, they're human authors and God should have just magically made a book and let Moses discover that. We all realize how inconsistent that is with the way of God who always works his plan through what? Human beings, doesn't he? So God intentionally selected certain authors that had wrote in different literary styles like you have the book of Genesis, which is a narrative history. You got Song of Solomon, which is a poem. Different people wrote them, and they wrote them through their own style and their own personality. If you read First John and Second John and Third John, John writes a lot about love in a relational way, connecting with the Father. You read the book of Romans, Wow. You better read it like four or five times to get the depth of the analysis of Paul's teaching of the work of Jesus Christ and how complete it is. Does that make sense? So God selected different humans, but into each of them, he expelled into them the concepts that he wanted written down. 
Does that make sense to you? Okay. Now, let's talk about infallibility, which is tied to inerrancy. The infallibility of Scripture literally means that which cannot fail. And people, the skeptics argue, well, the the words of God or the Bible is not infallible. And they argue against inerrancy. There's error in it. Therefore, it's infallible. Well, look, the two are different. Let me explain. Let's say I'm back in high school. Oh, thank God I'm not. And I've got a chemistry exam at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. I never liked science. I'm a history guy. So I would study really hard, and I go in tomorrow thinking, man, I hope I pass this thing. And it's 30 question, multiple choice. I get my grade back at the end of the week. I get 30 out of 30. I'd be pretty happy. That test was inerrant. In other words, I made no errors in that test, right? Does that make me infallible? No, just wait till the next chemistry test. I might get 12 out of 30. See, the issue here is not, people argue about, are there errors in Scripture? I don't have time in this message to talk about alleged discrepancies. The issue rises and falls on the authority of Jesus Christ and what he says about the Scriptures. Let me explain. Jesus says clearly the Bible is infallible and without error. I'll give you three quick examples. In Matthew 5, teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, in verse 18, he said, not one jot or tittle or one iota of my law is going to fall until everything is fulfilled. Every, every, every comma, every part of it is part of the whole word of God. He says in John 10, the holy scriptures cannot be broken or separated one from another. In John 17, when he's praying to the Father, he says, sanctify my disciples in the truth because only your word is truth. Only your word has completion. So Jesus thinks that the Bible is without error and cannot fail, right? Based on what you just read. So this takes us to the sinlessness of Jesus Christ as a man, as a human being. Hear me out. If Jesus claimed, and he did, that he only taught what he received from God the Father because it was truth, If he taught anything that he didn't receive from God the Father, then it would be error. And for him to teach error would be sin. And if Jesus did that, then he didn't die for your sins because he wasn't sinless. Do you wonder, some of you are looking at me like I'm from Mars. Do you get what I'm saying? Jesus claims all I'm teaching you is what the Father gave me. It's perfect truth. If he taught anything that wasn't from the Father, then he lied. It's error. And Jesus sinned. And if he sinned, he could not be the Lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice on the cross for our sins, because he was not sinless then. He couldn't pay for all of our sins. Have you ever thought about this before? Isn't that interesting? So, either Jesus is a fraud... Or what he said was the Bible was the Bible. Okay, that's like an eight-minute lesson on an eight-week series on inerrancy and infallibility and inspiration. 
Okay, so what I'm trying to get to here is that the Bible definitely is inspired by God, infallible, and inerrant. Or Jesus is a liar. That's the bottom line. Now let's talk about the canon. Critics say, and they make this stuff up, they say, well, you know what, over 2,000 books should have been considered and were considered for the canon to come up with just 66 was crazy. Let me tell you, those critics are wrong. If anyone does an honest, detailed study of the history of the selection process of what was really the Word of God, there were not 2,000 books. In fact, there were only three books over 100 years that were even somewhat considered to be part of the Bible that didn't end up in the Bible. Only three You may not be familiar with these. I'll just mention their names. The Didash, the Shepherd of Hermas, and the First Letter of Clement of Rome. Okay. So when the church fathers, the leaders, looked at all of the books, they had rules, and we're going to look at these in a minute. They didn't just come up with their own opinions. But in all three of these books, none of them could qualify as Scripture because in all three of them, the authors referenced to the apostles and their writings and submitted to apostolic authority and recognized that their letters or books that, or their teachings were post-apostolic. That's very important. Are you with me on this? Okay. So if you are quoting the apostles on a regular basis in recognizing their authority and not the authority of what you are writing, automatically you disqualify yourself. So really there were only 69 books considered, but three of them never made it. They were written late 1st, early 2nd century, okay? All right. So here's the irony. So the canon or this measuring rod, by the time the church started looking at what is really the Bible, they already had the Bible. In other words, all of the churches in the first century and then through the second century were using the books you and I use. Everybody get that? No. They weren't leather-bound. They weren't on your phone. They were mainly scrolls, parchment writings that they would copy by hand and pass around to each other. But every one of the books you and I study on a regular basis are the books, the only ones that were being used regularly for Sunday service. What do you think about that? Now the church, the pastors didn't get up and say, well, today we're going to look at the canon of Scripture. But they all recognized the authority of them. And so by the time the rules were put in place to determine what the canon was, there was something that launched them, that that was a catalyst to the church calling these councils and saying, all right, we need to formalize what the list of books are. There was a guy named Marcion who lived in the late 2nd century, and he was a Gnostic heretic. Gnosticism was a heresy in the 2nd century. Basically said that if you have enough knowledge, you could find your own godhood, right? That knowledge was God, and I don't have time to elaborate. Okay? But people that, for example, would escape into the desert just to gain more knowledge were considered holy, whereas you and I, if you actually went to work every day, you're just a bunch of idiots. 
Gnosticism leaned way, way, way over here. And Marcion was a Gnostic, and like all crazy people, he came up with this idea. He created his own canon based on this. He said, the Old Testament God, Yahweh, was a lesser deity, a lesser God, who was actually nasty. I've actually heard preachers talk about the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. Because Jesus came along and he's love, and you know the God of the Old Testament was harsh. I say, what are you talking about? It's one God. But Marcion got a big following. And he said, okay, because the Old Testament God was kind of a bad dude, Jesus came along to reveal who the true loving God is. Therefore, what Marcion did, everything in the Gospels and everything in the Epistles, like in Paul's writings, that referenced at all the Old Testament God or Jesus' relationship with them, with him, removed. So, much thinner book. Right? Much thinner. Most of Paul's writings were kicked out of the New Testament. And so the church, and he got a big following. People always run to the latest exciting thing going on. And Marcion was the latest exciting thing. He had a new idea, a new truth. And so the church leaders said, we need to hold a council. And they had a couple of councils over a course of time. And they said, we need to take a look at not just Marcion and cut this off at the pass. We need to figure out how we qualify what is truly the Bible and what isn't. Okay? So they came up with three tests. Test number one. Every book must have apostolic authorship or endorsement. So if one of the apostles wrote it or endorsed it, it could be recognized as Scripture. Doesn't mean automatically there were two more tests. So there are a couple of books in the New Testament that the apostles themselves didn't write, but they oversaw. The Gospel of Mark was overseen by Peter. Mark became like a disciple to Peter. Mark went to Peter and interviewed him time and again and again about the events with Jesus. And out of it, he wrote the Gospel and Peter oversaw it. And there was a guy named Luke. Whose team was Luke on? Does anyone remember? He was on Paul's team for most of his Christian life. And Paul oversaw the writing of his gospel. Luke wrote the book of Acts, didn't he? Right? And who was he with when all of it happened? And who's most of it about? It's mostly not just the church, but the ministry of Paul and the expansion of the church to the Gentiles. So those two books were recognized because they were endorsed by apostles. Peter and Paul. Everybody got that? That's rule number one. So if a book didn't pass that test, they threw it out. Test number two. It must have been received as authoritative by the early church. That means the churches, the local churches that made up the early church had to be exclusively using those books to teach from. 
week after week after week. And so the councils studied. Back then, people kept detailed records of things, much more than we do in our culture today. All right? And so things were documented. And so the books or letters, scrolls, parchments that were read from on a regular basis and taught from and studied by the leaders were the only ones that were included. So filter number one, apostolic authorship or endorsement. Filter number two, did it carry authority in the early church? Did all of the churches regularly recognize this book? You with me on this? Okay, test number three. They must be in harmony with the core books. So, there were books like Matthew and John, well, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Romans, the book of Acts, the book of Ephesians, the book of Philippians, that from early on, were read and used and accepted. There were a few books they wondered, okay, are, is the content of all of these in harmony with the rest of these books? And those books were Hebrews. There were a couple things out of chapter 6. They wondered, all right, is this in harmony? And, of course, it took like 50 years of study, and they concluded it was. The, the book of James, it's called like the Proverbs of the New Testament. And the book of Second Peter. All right, And so there were some people questioning, okay, do these three meet the first two litmus tests? And then, well, what about, do, does the content line up with everything else? And over the course of time, they came to a conclusion, yes, they do. You're talking the greatest scholars in the early church. Huge councils. It would be like um, a worldwide council of leaders on, on historic theology coming together, the greatest minds on planet Earth, over a hundred years, and coming up with the same conclusions. Each council ended up with the same conclusions. Are you with me in all this? Okay. So after they got through all of that, they said, ah, oh, we've discovered what the measuring rod is, what the norm is. We can trust that these 66 books and only these 66 books are the sacred scriptures. Now, the Reformation battled Rome over this. When I say Rome, I mean the Roman Catholic Church. And I need to just mention this, then I'm going to tell you a story. The Roman Catholic Church is based on their doctrine of the infallibility of the church and the papacy. That both Holy Mother the Church and the Pope are infallible. And so the Pope speaks ex cathedra from the throne of God. How do I know that? I was trained by the Jesuits. Okay? And so what the Roman Catholic Church said was, we are creating the canon because the church has authority over the scriptures. So they took the 66 books that you and I believe are the Bible and they added something called the Apocrypha, which were books, some of them historical, some philosophical, written between the two testaments, between 400, approximately 400 B.C. and the time of Christ. Everybody with me here? 
And so they said, we are including these. The Protestant Christian church, of which you and I are a part, said, no. We don't accept that because we are not infallible. We, the church, are not infallible. Only the word of God is infallible. And therefore, if it doesn't pass those three tests, we cannot receive it as Holy Scripture. Whereas Rome said, we're creating the canon. The Christian church said, we're receiving the canon. You see the difference? We are simply recognizing the authority of Scripture. And therefore, anyone that recognizes that the Word of God, that the Bible, that this book is the total ultimate authority of the Creator God on planet Earth, will find success, will abide in Christ, will overcome their enemies, will fulfill their destiny, because only it can complete you. That is what the church fought for, for like 1,700 years. Okay, does that give you a little bit of history? Are you ready for my story now? Based on this, and this is a story about me, I want to go to the next scripture here. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. The context here is entering into the rest of God. And the author, which I believe is Paul, is saying that, look, disobedience and hardness of heart keep people from the rest of God, but the word of God can overcome your disobedience and your hardness of heart, and he explains why. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Remember what I said. The word of God is the exhale of God. This is God's breath in written form. That's why John said, The Word was with God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The living God, Jesus Christ. And so it has an innate power nothing else has. The power to transform you. Sadly, Christians don't believe that. And it's sharper than any two-edged sword. Now back then, the most popular two-edged sword was the Roman gladius, which was a stabbing sword. If you study anything about warfare, which my sons and I do, the Romans... um, They perfected the phalanx in warfare, and they had a wall of shields, and they had a a line behind them of soldiers with the, the Roman, the gladius, a short stabbing sword. The shield would push, the enemy would draw back a little like this, the gladius would come over the top, stab right through the throat or the eye or whatever. I had to throw that graphic thing in, just to keep you awake. Right? And so... Paul is saying, oh, the word of God is, and these things had to be razor sharp because you didn't want to get stuck in some guy's bone in his skull, right? You needed to get that thing out and get the next guy. Trying to get your attention here. And have you ever tried to divide soul from spirit? Impossible. You ever try to pull the marrow out of bone, you? What he's saying is every time you read the word of God, It is so alive and so piercing because it is God's breath that it gets. God's breath gets inside of you. The pneuma of God gets inside of you and collides with what? The Holy Spirit that Jesus said lives within you if you're a follower of Christ. And that will transform you. 
So when I was younger, boy, this went fast. When I was younger, I battled with performance Christianity. I always felt like I had to work harder, try harder, to be accepted even by my brothers and sisters in Christ or the leaders. I was told I was called to ministry, so I tried to preach better than everybody and serve harder and so on. When I played ball back, football back in high school and college, I was a little guy, but I hit harder than anyone because I wanted to be accepted and all of this stuff. And when Jesus saved me, I was older in life, and, and he was working on me and cleaning me up. I met my precious wife, and I read this. And my spiritual father said, you need to live in the book of Romans. And so I did. He didn't give me a reason why. And I came to this. Romans chapter 5. I don't know how many, maybe thousands of times I've read Romans. He said this. For if because of one man's trespass, meaning Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And this launched me into a study of what's called imputation. Imputation. Which is that when a person becomes born again, they are declared Innocent, in other words, forgiven and justified, declared innocent by God. But there's more. The righteousness, the right standing of Jesus Christ, the perfect record of Jesus Christ is transferred to me. Because let's say you're forgiven for all your sins. What happens on Thursday if you sin? You're right back where you started. But Jesus and the Father came up with this legal act where they transferred into everyone's account, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It is the greatest gift on earth. You can't not be forgiven. You can't not be cleansed of your unrighteousness. Can I hear one amen on this? Are you kidding me? And so reading this, Reading this sword, it pierced this guy who was always out to prove himself and be better than everyone else because of my own insecurities. And I read this and I said, you've got to be kidding me. I grew up Italian Catholic. I was an expert at guilt. You know what I'm saying? We lived by guilt. Every Friday I have to go lie to the priest about my sins and confession. I even felt guilty about that. And then the book of Romans comes along. And I read it, and I reread it, and I reread it. And God opened my eyes, and He healed this soul. Let me ask you something. If that could happen to me in my battle, can it happen to you in your battle? That is why the Bible. I want the band to come up here. That is why this thing right here matters more than anything on planet earth. I would like to make one suggestion to any couples that are married. Guys, if you actually read half a chapter out loud with your wife a day, you watch the blessing of God come on your household. Why? It's not because you're such a great husband. I'm telling you now, none of us are. We try, but we screw up, don't we? It's because you're bringing the breath of God into your home, to your wife, and to your children. Does it get any better? No. Nowhere it gets better. So I want to do two things. I want you to stand. We're going to respond briefly in prayer. And then 
And these guys do a great job leading worship. I want you to lift holy hands and respond to the Lord what God has shown you this morning. Not only thank him, but worship him because he gave us this. Father, right now we renounce any wrong conceptions or ideas or concepts about the Bible. We, t- we tear off of our minds the doubts that, oh, it's not infallible and it's got error and it's not truly the word of God. We accept it because Jesus said it is the truth and we know he doesn't lie. So we submit to it. We ask you give us grace to read this thing that it would change us in ways nothing else could. We submit it to you in Jesus' name. Let's worship, folks. To find out more about us, go online to watermarkoc.church. 